Have your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Reading from chapter 4. Let's pray as we come to God's word. O Lord, our God, we come to you, we are a needy people. Would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So Esther in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed, clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so he might take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatach came, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. said. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the peoples of the king's people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes, in, goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it, is against, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And we thank the Lord for the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Think for a moment with me about those defining moments of your life. Maybe the forks in your road that set out your course and determines your future. Moments where you made a defining choice. You turned a corner. 
You declared a purpose. You set your face. You marked your territory. Some of them are moments not of choice, but of happenstance. The biopsy results. The stock market change. The company closing. A changing job. Leaving home. Starting university. Defining moments shape us and direct our steps in ways that leave us utterly changed. And as we turn for a few moments to Esther 4, this is actually the pivot of the whole book of Esther. I haven't really had time to give some background and have the time to give you the background, but in terms of character development, you know the story. Esther is moving from a subordinate, secondary role in the narrative meekly following Mordecai's instructions to the end of this chapter. Look at verse 17. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther said. So there's been a change in in, in the narrative. But for Esther, for Queen Esther, it is also a defining moment. A crucial decision has to be made, which only she can make upon which hung the fate, not just of her, not even of her broken family, but of her entire people. And it was a decisive moment for for Esther. It was a decisive moment for the Jewish people. And as we study it together, one of the key things it will help us begin to come to terms with is the often complex intersection of two vitally important biblical themes. On the one hand, we see the absolute sovereignty of God in providence, upholding and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And on the other hand, we see the absolute responsibility of human beings as his creatures in their respective vocations and calling. The sovereignty of God directs and governs all things, including the free actions and decisions of human beings. But Esther 4 teaches us our responsibilities in such a universe where God reigns in such a way still cannot be denied by an appeal to his sovereignty. And as Queen Esther discovers, the sovereignty of God does not get us off the hook when called upon to make difficult choices. So first of all, let's look at the passage together. No one can serve two masters. In chapter 3, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, in his rage against Mordecai, had manoeuvred and manipulated the amoral emperor King Ahasuerus into sanctioning the genocide of the Jewish people throughout the empire. And 11 months later, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, they they were to be, in the words of Haman's decree, killed, destroyed, and annihilated. That was his decree. As though killed wasn't enough, as though killed and destroyed wasn't enough, killed, destroyed, annihilated. And chapter 3 ends with the citadel of Susa in an uproar. And you have Ahasuerus and you have Haman, who've spent the last few days plotting genocide. It must be a tiring thing, plotting genocide. We've seen a lot of plots, haven't we, over recent years and even recent weeks. People plotting together. 
And after their plot has seemed to come to fruition, they're kind of unwinding over a few drinks. And chapter 4 kind of opens like a newsreel, cutting, if you like, immediately to get the reaction on the ground. And the camera, if you like, zooms in on Mordecai. He's tearing his clothes. He's putting on sackcloth and ashes. And he loudly proclaims his grief and distress throughout the city. So that, and then, you can almost hear, can't you, in verse 3, the news anchor in the studio saying, And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it's like, it zooms in on Mordecai, and then you hear that it's happening throughout the empire. But Esther appears quite oblivious to the uproar, to Haman's plot. But if you could imagine, if she would have turned on the news if there was such a thing, and she saw Mordecai weeping at the gates, she is concerned. She's seen the story of Mordecai, she's seen the uproar throughout the empire, so she sends fresh clothing to Mordecai, and eventually sends her servant to find out what is going on. And in verses 6 to 9, Mordecai gives Hatach a detailed account of all that has taken place. And he begins to plead with Esther to intercede on behalf of her people before the king. And then you have her immediate reply, her immediate reply to that appeal. All of the king's servants and the peoples of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes in to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is one law but to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to the king for these last 30 days. It isn't hard to imagine Esther's reaction, if you like, the blood draining from her face. Have you ever been asked to do something that you really don't want to do? Can you, and you know, the blood draining from her face, he, hasn't, he doesn't know what he's asking. To go into the king uninvited is to risk my life. To gamble on the whimsy of an amoral and you know, an awful tyrant. And if you think I'm the one, no, the, I'm not in the king's good books. The king hasn't asked for me for over a month. I'm not so sure, Mordecai, you get it. It's never going to work. And in verses 12 to 17 is the most famous passage of the book of Esther. And I confess I read it because it is the verse that means so much to me and my family as well. But Mordecai's reply is a masterclass in balancing equally ultimate, ultimate truths. Helping us hold together crucial principles with no compromise. Because in verse 13 he says Esther, he, Esther does face an uncomfortable choice. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So he's unflinching in shattering her secret refuge. Don't think for a moment that just because you are queen that your identity as a Jew will remain hidden. If Jews are going to die in the pogrom that Haman is planning, 
you will surely die with them, whether you're the queen or not. And he's forcing a decision. He's not holding back. He's forcing a decision that Esther has avoided so far. See, Esther has two names. She has a double identity in the book. First of all, she is Hadassah. She was a Jewish peasant girl. And here she is, Queen Esther, the Persian beauty and royal consort to the most powerful man in all the world. And for many years, she has lived a life submerged between, under Persian culture, with her Jewish roots, Hadassah, been forgotten and hidden away from view. But she can't live like that anymore. You see, there is no belonging to the people of God while living like a child of the world. You just can't. To put it in our terms, you can't be a secret Christian and a public pagan. Esther has to choose, and so do we. Maybe God is calling you this afternoon to recognise that that double life that you've been living simply cannot continue. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Whoever is not with me is against me. There's only two ways, no third way there. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there is no middle ground, there is no neutral territory, there is no demilitarised zone with where you can sign a truce with sin. Now, whose are you? Jesus Christ claims your allegiance and he calls you to face the cost of following him. The Bible says we're to pick up our cross and follow him and be prepared, Matthew 10, to lose our lives for his sake that we might find them. It is hard and it is scary and there is a cost to be paid. The call of God in our lives, in Esther's life. If you know the Lord Jesus, you belong to the covenant people of God and it is time you stand in solidarity with them. I think there's a call to us in this day and age to be who you are, child of God. There's, there's days that are not only coming, that are here, when we are called to be in allegiance with Jesus. There are bills being threatened in the House of Commons, <clears throat> conversion therapy bills and the like. And we are being called not to be of the world, but to be the child of God that we are. There is no defecting, brothers and sisters, from the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And secondly, there's this unshakable hope. Relief and deliverance will advise, will arise. So the second thing Mordecai tells Esther is doesn't not to her identity and her need to own it, but to his own security, to Mordecai's security. And we learn about this uncomfortable choice that Esther must make and we must make to stand for King Jesus. But we learn about the unshakable hope that those who do so can enjoy. We've just been listening to testimony after testimony of a man whose hope was in Jesus. 
And the book of Esther, if you like, is a small, it's a small book, but it's a small room in the centre of which sits a huge elephant. Never mentioned, but rather obvious once you've read the book. And the elephant in the room is the presence and sovereign grace of Almighty God. God is never mentioned, yet his sovereign overruling and his presence is everywhere to be seen. But in Esther 4 verse 14, that elephant that has been some, somewhere sitting vaguely in the room comes and sits in our laps. You can't miss it. For if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. But you in your father's house will perish. Relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Mordecai is full of unshakable hope and security. It reminds me of Abraham taking Isaac up to the altar. He was prepared to sacrifice his son because he knew, he knew that Christ, that, you know, that, 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 that God would even resurrect his son. That's an unshakable, sure hope and security. All the might of the empire is mustered against this man, but he speaks with utter and remarkable confidence. The extermination of his people is at the hands of Haman. This never-to-be-repealed of the king, decree of the king, of Mordecai and the Jewish people. And the Jewish people have been swept up in grief as a result. But there's no despair that we're reading when we see them weeping and fasting in the morning in reaction to Haman's decree. Look at verse 3. There was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and lamenting. And that language appears word for word. Better to say that language is borrowed word for word from the prophet Joel, which is a passage where God is calling his people to return to him. Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and with weeping and mourning, to rend your hearts and not your garments. The author of Esther 4 wants us to see that the reaction of the Jewish people in light of Joel 2 is not despair, but of repentance and faith and returning to the Lord. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Hear the echo of Mordecai's words in verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And who knows whether you have not come for the kingdom for such a time as this. Where did Mordecai get that certain hope and security? He knew the promises of God. He knew the faithfulness of the Lord who swore to relent when his people turned back to him. Relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Mordecai is secure in the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God whose promises never fail. And he trusts in the Lord who reigns over Haman's wicked heart and Ahasuerus's perverted power and Esther's fear-filled mind also rules the destiny of his people and he's promised to deliver them when they call on him in faith. Satan doesn't rule over anything. The Lord rules over all. And here is the proper use of this doctrine. This isn't a theological bludgeon with which to beat other Christians. 
It isn't something that we test each other for orthodoxy. The sovereignty of God, my friend, is a refuge where we rest secure. It's a safe harbour where you anchor your faith in every trial. It's a hiding place in the storm. And Mordecai knows that God, because he is Lord over all things, will not, cannot fail to keep his promises and uphold his covenant. No matter what the odds are arrayed against him. This looks fairly desperate, doesn't it? It looks awful. The situation looks bleak. But Mordecai knows, he knows that relief and deliverance will arise. So the sovereignty, the faithfulness of God is the scriptural medicine for the disease of fear. You kill the germ of anxiety with a hefty dose of God's sovereignty. Because brothers and sisters, your life rests in the hand of God, of infinite faithfulness and goodness and grace, and you could not be more safer or more secure. And it may also be the case that Mordecai wants Esther to understand that although there is a responsibility that she has been called upon to face up to here, there is also a danger that she must be careful to avoid. And the danger to be avoided is thinking herself essential, indispensable. And that's a real temptation we sometimes face. We either avoid our duty perhaps citing God's sovereignty as a justification for our passivity. Or maybe we step up to our obligations, but if we're not careful, begin to minimise our dependence on the Lord, thinking that I am the vital cog in the machine. I am the indispensable component in God's plan. And the trap that Satan loves to trap God's people with, if he can't paralyse us into inactivity, he would like us to overstate our own importance and make us bear the weight of the responsibility of the salvation of others entirely on our own, minimising God's role and maximising ours. We are speaking at lunch, uh, a few of us speaking at lunch, and I was just reminded of how it is God who saves. It's not the preacher, it's God who saves. Had someone come here um, about six months ago and asked me about a well-known preacher who used to preach in the Keswick Convention who fell very, very publicly and said, James, it can't be true what they're saying about him. I said, I think it is true. You know, as far as I can see, the statements have said so. Well, how can it be? I was helped so much by his ministry. And the point is that there will be men and women who will be in heaven because of people's ministry. Because it is the Lord who saves. And he uses broken vessels because he is sovereign. It is the Lord who saves. And if I believed that God were not sovereign in the salvation of sinners, I would never climb the pulpit. If I thought that your destiny rested on the exercise of your own will and therefore on the ability to impress and incline your will with the power of my rhetoric, if that is what I thought, I wouldn't be standing before you. I'd be rocking up back and forth in a darkened corner. No, I praise the Lord that salvation belongs to him. 
Your redemption is not my responsibility. I'm not called to save sinners, neither are you. We're called to preach Christ, and it is God who saves. And far from paralysing us, that sets us free. It sets us free to do it boldly and without fear, because relief and deliverance will arise from another place. If you do not go into the King, Esther, do not think that your failure to fulfil that duty will derail the plan of God and place it beyond recovery. Our salvation does not rest on you, but on the Lord. Praise God that that is true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But what an incentive then to serve him with boldness. We preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. Relief and deliverance will arise from another place. There is an uncomfortable choice to be made. Whose are we? There's an unshakable hope that we can enjoy. And finally, in the second half of verse 14, there is an unavoidable duty we must fulfil. You are his instrument for such a time as this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One of my dear friends from Vienna, he messaged me the other day and said, James, I'm wearing the T-shirt you had printed for such a time as this, because I, I had t-shirts printed for the school um, one, one year. And it just reminded me that that's how we are to be, to be useful to the Lord for such a time as this. But it, it's to Esther, it is review your own history, see the steps that led you here. Have you not asked yourself, Esther, often enough through all the heartbreak and the sorrow, what God was doing? Could it be, could it be that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this, just for this moment? All the history leading up to it? She's in a unique place in the providence of God with unique opportunities, unique responsibilities. Do you not see the duty that rests upon you to which you've now been called? You are his instrument for such a time as this. It's a question we need to ask ourselves, isn't it? What has God brought me to this moment and this place for? What has he made me to be in his wise providence? What are the unique opportunities that I have from where I am, where you are? The, your web of relationships, your connections that you've developed. How is the path of duty illumined for me by the overruling sovereignty of God at work in my life? These were the questions that Mordecai was asking Esther to begin to wrestle with. And verses 15 and 16 make clear they were questions that didn't take long for an answer. God took hold of her heart. She resolved her fears. She made her choice. She opted for solidarity with the people of God no matter what the consequence was. She calls the people of God to fast in earnest, but this time with a view to God's provision for her. And she will join them as together they wait on the Lord these next three days. And then comes verse 16, Esther's immortal declaration. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This was a decisive moment not just in the narrative, not even in Queen Esther's life, but the life of God's people. 
at this point of salvation history. And it's Esther's words, if I perish, I perish. They should ring in our ears. We should let the notes of courage and faith and heroism echo in our ears because you must hear in them the echo of another saviour's words. Spoken at the greatest decisive moment of them all. In the garden, staring into the gloom of Calvary, awaiting him. The submission and resolve we see in Esther is surpassed and fulfilled in the one to whom she points us. As the Lord Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. And like Esther in the citadel at Susa, and for the exiled Jews in the empire, so now for God's elect in every place, in every age, at just the right time. Romans 5 verse 6, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 verse 4, for such a time as this, God has raised up a saviour in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And whereas Esther risked everything to intercede for her people and lived, we have a better mediator who didn't risk it all, but laid it down and he died for his people. What Esther confessed as a possibility, if I perish, Jesus owned and chose as a necessity for us and our salvation. My friend, he perished that we might live. So Esther 4 directs our gaze to the decisive moment when salvation was won. And it calls all of us, every man, woman and child, to a decisive moment of our own. Has God brought you to such a time as this that you might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? So will you join the people of God in Esther 4 in repentance for their sin, rending their hearts, not just their garments? And will you find refuge in Jesus Christ alone, who has gone before the throne of glory for us, that we might live? May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.